You know, perhaps the most famous kingdom on our planet is Magic Kingdom. Maybe you've heard of Magic Kingdom. I would venture to guess some of you have even visited Magic Kingdom. It's uh, within the confines of Walt Disney World. It's just outside of Orlando, Florida. It is touted as the most magical place on earth. If you ever been there, you might agree with that statement. It is represented by the iconic Cinderella's Castle, and maybe you've seen that icon or even visited it as well. What would this planet be like if it were Magic Kingdom? You ever thought about that? If you visited Disney World and maybe you've thought about what it would be like to live in the Magic Kingdom, I think the first thing you'd notice is it would be clean. You ever been to Disney World? It's crazy how clean that place is. Unbelievable how you have millions of visitors each year, and yet it's kept completely and totally clean. If there's any bit of trash, it's quickly picked up. I think we could also imagine this earth being a magic kingdom as a place that is happy. I mean, the slogan for Disney World is the happiest place on earth, and by and large, it is true if you've ever visited the employees there are very helpful, very happy. I know that when we visited many years ago, Zoe lost her Mickey Mouse ears, and one of the employees there said, well, a little girl can't go through, uh, can't leave Disney World without Mickey Mouse ears, and supplied her with some more, totally free of charge. Everybody was very friendly, very happy. But if this place were the Magic Kingdom, there would be some, some downside, wouldn't there? I mean, for one, who's going to be the king? Because Magic Kingdom, as far as I know, doesn't have a king. And any kingdom has to have a king, right? Otherwise, there are no rules and there's chaos that ensues. There is anarchy. Plus, if this world, if this planet were Magic Kingdom, one thing we know about the Magic Kingdom in Orlando is that it's very costly to get into. The price of admission is very high. We wouldn't want to charge people so much that it would be a hindrance to them entering, right? And so there would be some downside, right? But let me tell you about a kingdom that we're all invited to, not just to visit, but to stay for eternity. It's actually better than a magic kingdom, but it's not make-believe. It's an absolute reality. And admission is costly, but it's also free. And this kingdom not only has a king, it has the best king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, which means that those who enter this kingdom are blessed, not just in this life, but for all eternity. You can go to Disney World, you can visit Magic Kingdom, and you can come away with some pretty magical memories, but imagine a kingdom where there is no war, only peace. Imagine a kingdom where there is no hatred, only love. Imagine a kingdom where there is no death, only life. It might sound make-believe, and it might sound too good to be true, but it's absolutely a reality. It's not magic kingdom, it's the master's kingdom. And the master invites us to come in. What is it? You know, I, I think it's appropriate to ask that question because you've probably read through the Bible and you've probably seen the word kingdom pop up several times, and you've probably wondered, okay, well, what is this kingdom? What's the nature of it? What does it look like? Who, who is prepared to enter? Maybe you've heard preachers or Bible class teachers teach on kingdom and you've left more confused than with answers because it can be a rather confusing subject. But if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, if we begin reading in verse 44, Jesus gives us some hints 
as to this kingdom, at least the value of it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and they will take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So what is the kingdom like? Well, it's like a, a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl of great value. It's like a dragnet cast into the sea that pulls up all kinds of fish, a boatload of fish. And the good are separated from the bad. The good are kept. They are the righteous. The bad are, are, are tossed back. They're thrown away. And Jesus, after giving these three short analogies concerning the kingdom, asked his disciples, do you understand this? And they say, yes. And I read this and I think, no. They may understand it, but that, there's more, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but just reading about the value of it doesn't tell me all the ins and outs of it. There's other questions, deeper questions, right? Especially when you consider that the word kingdom has many different meanings in the Bible, at least a few. I mean, first of all, kingdom can refer to something geographical or physical in nature, like we would often think of when we hear the word kingdom. It, it talks about territory or a geographical location. It can be talking about a region that is embraced uh, for a certain political territory. You might remember that Herod Antipas promised the daughter of Herodias half of his kingdom after she danced for him. Actually, Herod was a tetrarch under Roman authority. He didn't really actually have a kingdom, but I think you get the idea. Kingdom can also refer to the authoritative reign of God. In Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33, we read, about a parable in which Jesus detailed the Jews' persistent rejection of the prophets and eventually himself. And in verse 43, Jesus states, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So kingdom in this verse is a reference to the authoritative reign of God that had been in existence for the past 15 centuries, the reign that we commonly call the Mosaic Regime. And now, as we know, due to the rejection of Jesus Christ, that special relationship, that, that chosen relationship between God and Israel was terminated, and a new holy nation called the church was established. In Luke 1 and 33, it reads, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And I think it bears saying at this point that this kingdom will not be a physical kingdom as some religions teach, where Jesus will reign on a throne from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And we also see that kingdom can refer to the heavenly realm. Kingdom can refer to heaven. 
the ultimate home for the faithful. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then finally, kingdom can be synonymous with the church. You might remember in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that Jesus said to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the keys that, that Peter was getting were representative of the authority to open the doors of the kingdom. Which Peter and his apostles, the other apostles, would do through preaching the gospel. And so hopefully we can see that the kingdom can mean several different things depending on the context and how it's used. And hopefully that clears up the waters a little bit. Hopefully they're a little less muddy. But let's take a closer look at this word kingdom. Let's examine it in Scripture and let's look at Mark chapter 12. And in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28, it says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. I want you to take note of that last line there. At least the second to last line, when he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And what I want you to notice about that is the scribe's understanding of the two greatest commandments. His understanding of that, Jesus says, puts him in close proximity to the kingdom of God. Now we have to understand that this proximity is not physical, right? It's spiritual in nature. For Jesus, it was all about the spiritual. But you've heard me say, and I'm sure others say over and over again, that the Jews' thinking was always physical, right? It was always physical. That there would be a physical kingdom here on earth that Jesus, or, I mean, not Jesus, but a Messiah would come that would represent either Moses or actually might be Moses reincarnate and come and rule with an iron fist, the Messiah was going to come, wipe away Israel's enemies, and rule here on earth in a physical kingdom. So for the Jews and their thinking, like this scribe, it was all about the physical. And Jesus, of course, was all about the spiritual. Remember, he, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom was very different, which is why he spoke about this kingdom so often, to try to get it through their thick skull that it was not physical. The scribe's answer had brought him in close proximity to the kingdom because his heart was focused in the right direction. You see, for so many of the Pharisees, their heart was focused in a physical direction, and it was focused on a mechanical law. It had lost the spiritual nature. 
there was no longer any love present motivating the keeping of the law. I want you to notice another passage. This one's found in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. It says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So, if it's in the Pharisees' midst, if it was in that scribe's midst, then where is it? If Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, well then where is it? Where's the castle? Where's the throne? And Jesus says, it's not like that. You're not going to see it in those terms. You're looking in, in a physical way and you need to be thinking in a spiritual way. You can't point to it and say, there it is, because it's spiritual in nature. Now you may use a version that states, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. But the Greek here can be translated to mean in your heart or dwelling within you. And I really think the New American Standard here renders it best as it points to Jesus being among them. Because the Pharisees certainly didn't have the kingdom of God within them at this point. It's the person of Jesus Christ that's in their midst. That was the kingdom that he was pointing to. He was in their midst. Jesus was the king. And it was imperative that they understand that. That they lay hold of that. When Jesus was before Pilate in the Praetorium, Pilate asked, or, or Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. But right after that statement, Pilate asked, so are you a king? And Jesus responds, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Even though it's not a physical kingdom, there is a king. Jesus says, he's right here, he's standing in your midst he is in front of you. In fact, that's why the king came, to establish his kingdom and to tell the world how to enter into it. Matthew refers to this kingdom in slightly different language. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, but he's still talking about the same kingdom. In Matthew 4 and 17, it says, From, the time, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that Matthew is referring to is the same kingdom that has been talked about by Luke and John and Jesus. It's the same kingdom kingdom. Mark states it this way, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You have to understand that Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. And remember how the Jews thought about kingdom. They thought in a physical term. And Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom. It would make sense that Matthew would use terminology that would reinforce this to people who are thinking only in physical terms. So he talks about the kingdom of heaven to try to get across to them, quit thinking in physical terms. This is not physical language, this is spiritual language. And so you take all of that in and you think to yourself, wow, this, this kingdom concept can be quite confusing. If you think you're confused, think about the Jews of this day. I mean, their entire thinking is being cut out from under them. This whole idea that the kingdom would be physical, that the Messiah would be physical, and now Jesus is coming claiming that he is the Messiah and saying, no, no, it's not about that. There is no castle, there is no, there is no literal throne right here that the king is going to sit on and rule with an iron fist. No, this is something bigger. This is spiritual. You know, we sing a song quite often. It's a rather new song, and it's a song that, uh, that I think expresses this kingdom concept very well. We're going to sing it, and as we sing it, 
I want you to think about the words of this song in light of what we've just been talking about, okay? never thought about the kingdom of God being within you, but it most definitely is for the Christian. The kingdom that Jesus speaks so much about is inside of you as well. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a concept that is used quite often in the Bible. It's called parallelism, and parallelism simply means this. It's the idea that one thing means the other. In this case, Jesus says, His kingdom come, my will be done, or your will be done. When you do the will of the Father, the King reigns in you. When you're doing the will of the Father, if you do the will of God, then the kingdom is in you. If you don't do the will of God, then the kingdom is not in you. That's parallelism. You see it also in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Same concept. What brings the kingdom of God inside of you is the righteousness of God. And when you seek God's righteousness, you're seeking the, the, the kingdom. If the king reigns in your heart, then the kingdom of God will be present as well. And so you think about that in terms of the Jews' way of thinking. Not only their expectations of a physical kingdom, but also how they turned the law of Moses into something mechanical, right? They forgot the spirit of the law in which it was given. And they turned it into something rote and mechanical. In other words, as long as you didn't commit adultery, as long as you didn't steal, then you were holy. But you and I know of plenty of people who have never killed anyone, who have never stolen anything. They're not any more holy than anybody else, right? Just avoiding certain behaviors doesn't make you holy. 
doesn't make you righteous. You see, the Jews were so concerned about dotting every I and crossing every T that they forgot the spirit in which the law was given. Not only that, they had elevated their oral traditions to an unhealthy level. These oral traditions were put into a collection known as the Mishnah. Maybe you've heard of that term. And these oral traditions were given equal standing to God's word. Problem is, God didn't care anything about the Mishnah. He didn't give that. He wasn't beholden to that. He didn't care about it. But they had elevated it to the same level as God's commands. They were not from God. They were from man. And the scribes and the Pharisees allowed an allegiance to the law and these oral traditions to trump an allegiance to God. And that was the problem. In their diligence to keep the law and their traditions, the Pharisees forgot about God and they forgot about other people. The spirit was gone. Love was gone. They believed that God hated sinners and therefore that's why they hated sinners. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus attempted to show them what they were missing. He came to write it on their hearts. He came to show them that it's not just about something mechanical and rote, that it's about something bigger. It's about love. It's about, it's about loving not only God, but your fellow man. You can practice avoidance and never be holy. Instead of merely avoiding certain behaviors, instead of being a rule keeper, be a kingdom dweller. Let Christ dwell in your heart and thus let him dictate your actions. In other words, don't just be a dedicated rule follower, be a dedicated Christ follower. If you're a dedicated Christ follower first, then you're going to naturally seek the kingdom and his righteousness. And thus you will seek his will. They will go hand in hand. The Israelites missed the point of the law. They missed the point of the kingdom. And sadly, there are many Jewish folks today that are missing the point. There are many religious folks that are missing the point. Some are still waiting for Jesus to come and, and set up his kingdom. They're longing for a day when the Messiah is going to return to this earth for the purpose of establishing an earthly kingdom where he's going to reign for a thousand years. Some go so far as to suggest that when Jesus came to this earth the first time that he intended to set up an earthly kingdom but was thwarted and because of the rejection he had to turn to plan B, which was the church. My friends, this kind of theology is based on a a poor interpretation of the book of Revelation. Can we really trust a theology that teaches that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords had to have a plan B? The God that I am beholden to, the Lord that I put my faith and trust in, the supreme ruler of the universe, the one that holds the universe in the palm of his hand doesn't need a plan B. Whatever he has set out to do will be done. Doesn't matter what I think about it or what anyone tries to do to stop it. If he wishes for it to be done, it will be done. How can one go all in on an ideology that teaches that Jesus Christ established a church and that church was an afterthought? My God doesn't fail at anything. You know, today there is constant conflict between Israel and and Lebanon. And this conflict is certainly unfortunate, but it's also nothing new. It's been going on for years, and I assume it will continue to go on for years. And you know why there is this constant conflict? You know what it's over? It's over dirt. It's over dirt. 
It's over something physical. I mean, you look at it, the Arabs don't want the Jews to have this, this, this land that the Jews believe belongs to them, and they believe that God wants them to occupy it because they are God's chosen people. In fact, our U.S. foreign policy, by and large, is based on the fact that the majority of people in America, some 70%, believe that we are going to go to Jerusalem the day that Jesus returns. My friends, that is an incorrect rendering of Scripture. The Messiah has come. The kingdom has come. It is here. It is even in the Jews' midst, and they're missing it because they're focused on the physical. The Jewish people are fighting over dirt today. They're fighting because they believe the kingdom is physical. In other words, little has changed since Jesus walked the earth. The Jews of, this, of his day also believed in a physical kingdom, a physical Messiah. And Jesus said, I am a deliverer but I'm not a physical deliverer. I am a spiritual deliverer. I came to rescue people from the bondage of sin. I came to bring them out of slavery, the slavery of sin, which is a much more noble and monumental effort, right? Because when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, that should tip us off that anything physical that we think about concerning the kingdom should be set aside. It is in our midst. It is in us. The kingdom has come. What are you waiting for? It's here, and you're missing it. Jesus already came to deliver people. He came to deliver them from the oppression of sin. Look with me at Matthew chapter 22, and beginning in verse 15. I think this passage illustrates the collision of thought between the Jews and Jesus concerning the kingdom. It reads, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and he said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought it to him. They brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to, him, to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. The whole message here is that believers could pay taxes to a corrupt government because it was physical in nature. It didn't matter. It was earthly and material. What matters is the heart, and that belongs to God. In essence, Jesus is saying, follow the laws, submit to the worldly authorities, so long as they don't conflict with my teachings. Just do it, because they don't matter anyway. This is all going to pass away. It's all going to be burned up in the end. What truly matters is that you are in a spiritual kingdom, because the physical is non-consequential. It doesn't matter. The physical is going to pass away, but the spiritual kingdom will last for eternity. So focus on the spiritual because that's what truly matters. You know, Christ's earliest followers would live, for the most part, under regimes that were hostile towards them. And yet, through it all, they were encouraged to keep the faith, to live as salt and light in the world around them, representing Christ wherever they went, because their kingdom was not of this world. 
Jesus constantly redirected the focus of his disciples, telling them, you're a part of a spiritual kingdom. Good, good lessons for us, right? That invest so much time and energy in something physical, and we stay here and we build our empire of dirt, and we think that we have accomplished something, and we're so proud of our accomplishments. We're trying to climb the ladder of success in our job, in our career, or we're trying to do great things in order to gain notoriety or in order to win an award or whatever it may be. And in the end, we may be missing out on the spiritual. It's as Jesus, as if he's whispering in our ear, look, that stuff is fine and good, but ultimately it doesn't matter. What matters is the spiritual. You know, a kingdom has to have four things in order for it to be considered a kingdom. It has to have a king, it has to have subjects, it has to have law, and it has to have territory. If any one of those things is lacking, then you can no longer adequately describe it as a kingdom it's got to have those four things and so when you look at a kingdom you look that you have a king that sits on his throne and he rules and many times he rules from a prideful and selfish position he doesn't always do what is right for the citizens read through the old testament sometime at some of the kings right they didn't always do what was right for the citizens or right according to god but nevertheless you have a king who sits on his throne you have people that are under his authority, the subjects, right? You have law or decrees that are passed down. Some of those laws may not even make sense. They may be only so that the king can uh, serve his own selfishness or his ego like Nebuchadnezzar. And then you have to have territory. There's got to be boundaries marked off for the kingdom to be established and for that king to rule over. Any one of those absent and you don't longer have a kingdom. But you think about this spiritual kingdom. It is too vast to measure. We have a king that sits on his throne, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And he does have subjects. And he does pass down laws. But what we missed all too often is that this king is not sitting on his throne ruling with an iron fist. But rather this king is also a father who loves his subjects who are also his children. And he invites his children to come near. Not only that, he even wants those who are outside of the kingdom to have access. He cares about them as well. And the decrees that he has passed down are for our benefit. Not because he wants to make some arbitrary rules to serve his selfish and, and prideful ego, but because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. We have the best king. His decrees are not burdensome. And we are not merely his subjects because he cares deeply for the citizens of this kingdom. He wants what's best for us, which is why he has issued his decrees. His territory is too vast to measure, but it's also right here in our heart. And so the question I leave you with this morning is, since the kingdom has come, since it is here, are you in it? It is here, are you in it, and is it in you? And if you're not in the kingdom, then 
I would encourage you this morning to ask me, to ask another staff member, to ask an elder what you need to do. Maybe we need to set up a Bible study. Maybe we need to talk further about what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom. Because the most important decision that you could ever make in your life is to be a part of the kingdom. To put on Christ. To be a citizen of the kingdom and to live a holy life set apart to God so that you can be with Him for all eternity. If you have not made that decision, if you want to know more about what it takes to be a part of the kingdom, or perhaps you have made that decision at some point in your life and you have not been living in a godly direction, and you're ready to come home, let us help you. Whatever we can do this morning, but don't leave here without being right with God and knowing your place is secure within the kingdom. Come now as we stand and as we sing.